Hello to our latest podcast in the time of social distancing. Uh, This is yet another entry in uh, what in the world are we doing with evictions. Uh, We have a a continual moving target. The fifth amended best practice lasted about uh, nine days before uh, it had to be changed and so we are up to our sixth amended best practice. Uh, With me again um, are the Honorable Anna Huberman from Country Meadows Justice Court and the Honorable Gerald Williams from North Valley Justice Court. I'm Charles Adonetto, the Judicial Education Officer. The materials can be found in Hightail along with the uh, CLE certificate so if you, uh, or COJET certificate, so if you want COJET credit, make sure you fill that out and turn that into Esther. And uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, talk about everything that has happened since our last podcast. Uh, and as you'll see, that is quite a bit. So Judge Williams, why don't you go ahead and get us started uh, with the constitutional challenge to the governor's executive order. Okay, thank you. The, the first two things I'm going to talk about are actually challenges to the to executive orders that have been issued both by the uh, governor of Arizona and then by the Centers for Disease Control at the federal level. On August 12th, um, which seems like a long time ago now, but on August 12th, the Arizona Multifamily Housing Association, along with some other individual landlords, filed a special action in the Arizona Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of the governor's executive orders. Um, the petitions maintained essentially that he he acted in violation of the constitutional guarantees of separation of powers, and they even cited the Federalist Papers as authority at one point. The, they alleged that the executive order was beyond the scope of his statutory authority under both Arizona Revised Statute 26303 and 36787 because evictions postponements were in reality an economic welfare program and not a public health measure. Most of the challenges to the executive orders around the country have taken a similar position to that. Uh, In this case, in the alternative, the petitioners also argue that even if the governor's order was authorized by statute, that statute was unconstitutional as it was applied because the type of legislative power um, that was used cannot be cannot be delegated. Um, so in support of this position, they maintained that no statute articulated a basis to suspend the enforcement of private residential leases statewide. The governor's office oddly wasn't, the, the governor wasn't specifically named in the lawsuit, which was, was maybe interesting, but the governor's office responded by filing a motion to intervene, stating that, hey, we should be named in the lawsuit because The governor's authority is what's being challenged. Uh, The Arizona Supreme Court granted that motion, and in response to the merits of the petitioner's claim, the governor's attorneys argued that the executive order was lawful because it only temporarily suspended the postponement of enforcement of residential eviction actions. Um, It did not relieve any tenant of any obligation to pay rent, and also because it allowed landlords to file a motion with the trial court alleging that enforcement of an eviction was either necessary in the interest of justice or under Arizona law. Um, the governor's att- 
attorneys also made the argument that there was an insufficient factual record for the Supreme Court to hear the case, and the landlords had a remedy at a lower court level as evidenced in part by a case that had been originally filed in the Hacienda Justice Court, went up to the Superior Court level, and it generated a written opinion saying that the governor's actions were lawful. In contrast to Governor Ducey wanting to get into the lawsuit, the state of Arizona wanted to get out of the lawsuit, and the Arizona Attorney General actually filed a response to this case saying they did not want to be a party to the case, and made several arguments alleging that the Supreme Court lacked jurisdiction over the state of Arizona in this context. On October 7th, the Arizona Supreme Court decided not to decide the case. They issued a two-paragraph order declining jurisdiction, and they essentially agreed that the issues could be resolved by having a case filed in the lower courts where a more complete factual record could be developed. There's a similar challenge in federal court. Okay, let me stop you there on the governor's... Okay. So it was, first of all, I'm sure the reference to the Federalist Papers warmed your heart, but it was certainly a tactical error then on the part of the plaintiffs to go directly to the Supreme Court. And how much of the Supreme Court's issue behind the scenes was because the governor's executive order expires on October 31st and is rendered largely moot by the CDC order? They don't explicitly say that. No, but I agree that they... I mean, they don't decide cases in a vacuum. I'm sure they knew that there was a Centers for Disease Control order out there that had essentially trumped the governor's executive order. No one knows that the governor was planning on extending the executive order past Halloween, but the Centers for Disease Control order is significantly easier for tenants to comply with than the current version of the governor's executive order, which requires a couple things be proven that we've talked about in prior orders. So assuming the CDC order stays in effect, there's really no reason for Governor Ducey to extend his order. Okay. But not surprisingly, and you're right, I was excited to see a reference to the Federalist Papers in any modern pleading, but there's also a similar challenge in federal court in Atlanta. After Congress didn't renew the CARES Act, the Centers for Disease Control, pretty much on their own, on what I can tell, we don't know the background, but on September 4th, the Centers for Disease Control added its own ban blocking residential evictions for nonpayment of rent. This one is nationwide, and it runs until December 31st. On September 8th, 
uh, an organization called the New Civil Liberties Alliance, uh, which is a group of attorneys that, that litigates this, these types of cases, um, filed a complaint on behalf of a landlord in federal district court in Atlanta. It alleged the Centers for Disease Control order was unconstitutional um, because, uh, again, similar arguments, the Centers for Disease Control had not identified any act of Congress that conferred upon it the power to hold evictions or preempt state landlord-tenant law. The lawsuit also alleged the CDC's order impermissibly commandeered state courts and state officers to apply, enforce, and implement an unconstitutional federal law. Um, the next significant thing that happened in this, uh, at least in my opinion, added sort of an Alice in Wonderland quality uh, to everything. The Department of Justice on October 2nd filed a response to this lawsuit in Atlanta. Um, in addition to their other procedural and substantive uh, positions, it actually argued that the Centers for Disease Control order did not mean what it said. Um, this caught pretty much everyone off guard. Um, the, the, their pleading says, even where a tenant is entitled to protection uh, under the order, the order does not bar a landlord from commencing a state court eviction proceeding, providing the actual eviction does not occur while the order remains in place. This view conflicts with the actual language in the CDC regulation, which defines eviction to include any action by a landlord or an owner of residential property or other person with a legal right to pursue an eviction or a possessory action. I took the position after reading the, the CDC definition um, just at face value and concluded that a landlord could not even file a five-day notice, um, could, couldn't serve a five-day notice on a tenant, let alone uh, file an eviction action. and. That's pretty much the, the position that I think we took in Arizona, at least, uh, especially given the substantial criminal penalties for violating the, the CDC order. Um, although the Department of Justice um, pleading is obviously in a different court in a different jurisdiction that's far away from Arizona, it could certainly be argued that it was the official legal position from the federal government. Um, and once that happened, it, it triggered some some conflict of law and, and interpretation problems. Certainly our local landlord attorneys took the position that it was the official legal view of the, the federal government, and we suddenly had to change all of our practices. Um, shortly after that happened, the Centers for Disease Control decided to issue its own, what they called non-binding guidance, and I'm going to punt and give that to Judge Huberman to explain to the extent that it's possible to explain that, that document. And, and we are going to refer to that document as the frequently asked questions, and that is included in the packet. Uh, the CDC issued that without a date on it or any other identifying uh, information on it. Judge? Thank you. Uh, that is correct. So late last week, the CDC issued this document, which they call a non-binding guidance, um, which just has the frequently asked question. And it does uh, begin by stating that eviction means 
any action to pursue eviction or possessory action to remove or cause the removal of a person from a residential property. And I as well agree that that would mean you can't even initiate the eviction proceeding, at least uh, in Arizona, for with uh, how Arizona law uh, deals with evictions. But then that same FAQ goes on to say that it is not intended to prevent the landlord from starting an eviction action proceeding as long as actual eviction does not take place during period of the order. So the, the second paragraph apparently uh, uses the word eviction in the sense of actually removal from the property. And so this paragraph uh, seems to indicate that it's okay to initiate the proceeding as long as the writ isn't issued or the person isn't removed from the property. Um, so I'll leave that uh, right now with just that explanation, uh, and then when we go into our best practice, uh, how we have decided to interpret that. Um, I think Charles is going to talk a little bit about that. Um, it also goes on to say that the uh, the CDC order still applies to cases that even if the judgment was issued before the date of the order, so the CDC order went into effect on September 4th, um, and so it indicates that if there was a judgment that was entered before September 4th, but that tenant is still in the property, then that tenant is still protected by the CDC order. Um, and and uh, among the other things in the FAQs, uh, it defines what a covered person is, uh, that it's the tenant, the lessee, or a resident of a residential property. Specifically indicates that it's um, all residential properties. We had an issue with the governor's executive order initially because it wasn't clear what was covered and what wasn't, and some of our landlord attorneys uh, tried to make the case that mobile home park for example, were not covered under the executive order. Uh, with the CDC order, now with this uh, guidance and uh, with the language in the order, it is clear that it applies to all residential properties and specifically includes a mobile home park um, and, and other types of rentals except for hotels and vacation short-term rentals. Um, and then the, the, the major change uh, that also was not clear in the original CDC order that does come up in these FAQs is that it specifically allows the landlord to challenge the truthfulness of the declaration that the tenant uh, has provided the landlord in it's a state or municipal court. Um, so that as well is something that the Best Practices Committee has now taken on. Uh, we had to come up with a procedure to be able to challenge the, the tenant declaration. All right, and additionally, the CDC guidance uh, does talk about the situation when there's more than one resident in the property, how many declarations need to be filed. Um, it, it, again, specifically indicates that if they are a couple that files their taxes jointly, 
uh, one of the, uh, the, the, the tenants may file, or actually should file, the declaration on behalf of both of them. Uh, so that is not uh, necessary that each of the tenants file their own separate declaration. And then if there are other tenants in the home that are not um, filing joint taxes, even so it says um, that they should probably file their own declaration, each tenant, but it is not necessary and it is not mandatory. Um, and the position would be that if one of the tenants is eligible for the moratorium, that would extend to the other tenant. Thank you. And uh, Judge Williams, uh, the Supreme Court in Administrative Order 159, which was issued on October 7th, also did allow the landlord to file a challenge to the CDC declaration. Why don't you go into that? They did. It, 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 it's a little odd that it came out prior to, um, probably significantly prior to the, the CDC frequently asked questions. And there was initially a, a dispute as to whether or not um, the landlord had any uh, essentially due process rights to challenge one of these CDC orders, but the administrative order 2021-59 uh, does provide a mechanism for a landlord to challenge the validity of a tenant CDC declaration. Um, previously, there was kind of a general agreement that it was almost like an automatic stay in bankruptcy if the uh, tenant gave their landlord a CDC declaration, it froze everything, um, including, uh, we thought at the time, the ability of a landlord to even serve a five-day notice on the tenant. But now a landlord, um, under the order and presumably under the frequently asked questions guidance, um, the landlord now has the option of filing a motion with supporting evidence um, that can, can contest a tenant CDC declaration. After reviewing the motion and the evidence attached to it, the trial judge then has to make an initial determination as to whether or not there's enough there to set it for a hearing. So the, the, the trial judge has the option of setting the motion for a hearing. After the hearing, the judge um, has the option of granting the landlord's motion as long as the judge verbally makes uh, specific findings, factual and legal findings on the record. After all of that, you then get to a starting point where the residential eviction could proceed. Um, I haven't seen one of these yet. I don't know if anyone has seen one of these yet, but the, the potential uh, for at least uh, a landlord to challenge uh, a CDC declaration now exist in Arizona, at least as of October 7th. Um, one of the second main things that Administrative Order 2020-159 did was, it, it concerns the impact of the Center for, for Disease Control order and expired leases. And for that, I know, okay, Charles wants to talk about something else. Okay. No, I, I, <laughs> it, we do have a form that will talk about what to do with uh, contested uh, declarations 
Uh, but before we talk about the forms, let's go to Judge Huberman to talk about expired leases, which, by the way, was the one sliver of the governor's executive order that the uh, Best Practices Committee had determined still had some impact prior to the CDC order. Judge Huberman? Yes, that's correct. So the governor's executive order 2020-49 uh, ex that extended uh, the original stay on eviction um, did not specifically um, or exclusively say that it applied to non-payment of rent cases. Um, it only said that that the evictions were stayed unless there was that the enforcement was necessary in the interest of interest of justice or um, under ARS thirteen thirteen sixty eight A, which would have been material noncompliance or immediate evictions. And so the best practices uh, and then the Arizona Supreme Court we interpreted that uh, non renewal of leases would uh, still be protected under this executive order. When the CDC order came out, um, it was very clear that it was only exclusively applied to non-payment of rent cases. And so, uh, as, as Charles just said, we, our interpretation was that those tenants would be better served uh, with the protections of the executive order, not with the CDC order. Uh, but now the, the Supreme Court Administrative Order 2020-159 has interpreted uh, the CDC order to apply to non-renewal of leases. And what it uh, specifically says is that the termination of a month-to-month -month tenancy is presumed to be due to non-payment of rent if the rent has not been paid or if there's uh, some other monies owed. Uh, and it says that the CDC order is applicable unless the plaintiff proves the termination was for a reason other than non-payment of rent, penalties, or interest. So the landlord has the burden to show that the non-renewal was for a reason different than just a non-payment of rent. Uh, but they do have the ability to do that. Uh, again, these cases would be set for a trial, and the judge must... Uh, state the basis for their decision on the record. All right, Judge Williams. What uh, the other surprise? The, third, uh, the surprise uh, for judges yeah. in Administrative Order One Fifty Nine. It was. It was certainly a surprise for me. Um, the. The third main thing that the administrative order did, in addition to all the other things that that the administrative order was was doing, that was essentially standing orders. Um, the third main thing it did was direct um, an additional requirement for trial court judges for eviction cases based on something other than non-payment of rent. We are now required to provide written findings establishing any basis. Um, for non-compliance of a lease. So this really runs the gamut. Um, evictions based on facts as diverse as having a meth lab in the kitchen to having an unauthorized cat um, arguably require written findings of fact and conclusions of law now. Uh, perhaps 
surprisingly, we've created some forms for such a purpose, um, and Charles is going to talk about those later. But it, it certainly um, caught us off guard that part of the administrative order requires the, the trial judge to make findings verbally on the record, and another part of the administrative order requires um, written findings for a separate type of eviction case. All right, and actually we will talk about the forms now. So in your packet, uh, you will find um, a form called Ruling on Motion to Contest CDC Declaration. Now that does not specifically have to be in writing, except uh, when you get that motion to contest, you are going to have to determine whether or not there was sufficient evidence to go ahead and set this for a uh, contested hearing. Um, so you would either have to do a minute entry or something else to go ahead and indicate that, that the plaintiff has met that initial burden. So you'll see at, at the top of the motion, upon written motion, this matter came before the court on plaintiff's written motion to contest the CDC declaration filed on, and you know, you'll put in the date there. And upon review of the motion and the evidence described in the motion, the court rules as follows. And so you either find reason to believe based on the evidence described in the motion that there is enough evidence there to set it um, for a hearing, or you find that it did not uh, meet that burden, and therefore you deny the motion without hearing. Uh, and then the great thing uh, that we put in there is we interpreted the Supreme Court administrative order to require the plaintiff to specifically identify what evidence they're going to have and put that in the motion so that they don't call the tenant and do a fishing expedition with the tenant or hope that the tenant doesn't show. So you'll see the sentence there, plaintiff may not introduce any evidence not identified in the motion at the hearing. The second portion, uh, or the bottom portion, is following a hearing. Now that you can just do on the record. But since we have this nifty form for you, you can go ahead and put it in the form. First, we want to make sure that all parties had notice of the hearing. And then uh, you find whether, uh, then you indicate whether or not uh, the uh, plaintiff proved their burden uh, that um, any of the statements identified in the motion were material inaccurate and therefore inaccurate and therefore the eviction matter may proceed and you do have to put findings on the record so you will have to handwrite in there exactly what your basis is and what you found to be uh, untruthful in the tenants declaration so you are going to have to do some handwriting in there uh, or the form or say it on the record or the form is not complete the second form that you have in your packet is findings on forcible detainers, material noncompliance, or immediate evictions. And as Judge Williams said, that is because that is specifically required to be in writing. So you definitely have to uh, fill out this form or something like it. And so again, you do want to ensure that the parties receive notice or service of today's proceeding. Uh, that the court has jurisdiction of the matter. The next paragraph is automatically checked because that's there to remind everyone what the CDC does not protect against. 
uh, and then you do find whether or not a lease was in effect uh, and um, whether it was a forcible detainer or whether it was a material non-compliance or a material and irreparable breach of the lease. Uh, if uh, the plaintiff does not meet their burden and the matter is going to be continued to, until the CDC order expires or there's a change in circumstances. Uh, if the plaintiff did meet their burden of proof, you do have to specifically put facts there. Once again, we've got lines where you can handwrite in uh, what exactly you're relying on. That does need to be in writing, so you do need to put it there. The third form that you have is a nifty, dif uh, nifty form done by Judge Williams, uh, which is just check boxes on the different types of material noncompliance and irreparable breaches that you can have. Uh, you, you can use that form or adapt any of the forms that, that we provided you for your own benefit. Again, it's just really important that you know when you need to make a ruling on the record and when you need to do it in writing and comply with the Supreme Court Administrative Order. Uh, as those of you who've listened to our current issues in ethics podcast when uh, Director Margaret Downey um, did that podcast for us, uh, you are required to, to follow Supreme Court administrative orders, so it, it's not an option. And we've reached the portion where we're actually now going to talk about our best practice. Uh, this is the sixth amended best practice, as I indicated at the beginning of the podcast, there actually was a fifth amended best practice, which only lasted about nine days. And what we did in the fifth amended practice, uh, best practice, back to the CARES Act, and um, uh, this had been in the previous few versions of the, um, I believe, the third, fourth, and fifth best, uh, third and fourth best practice. Uh, with respect to the 30, uh, 30 days that are required following a CARES Act case, if a landlord is going to be seeking rent for the period uh, that the property was protected by the CARES Act, if that was the case, then the CARES Act does require that the tenant cannot be evicted prior to 30 days following the notice. Uh, and so it does clarify that it can be a five-day notice as long as the landlord waits 30 days before they go ahead and proceed to evict the tenant. So that was um, the, the, the major change in the Fifth Amended Best Practice. Then the Supreme Court Administrative Order uh, 159 came out and the CDC Q&A came out. And so we will go through the major changes in this new best practice. And if you go to page two, uh, the third paragraph from the bottom, uh, we added through Administrative Order 2021-59, the Supreme Court has interpreted the CDC order to essentially render uh, the governor's executive order without impact. Uh, however, in the event the CDC order is changed or is reinterpreted, we still have that uh, governor's executive order as potential protection so it does remain relevant at least until October 31st. Uh, after October 31st, the best practice might be considerably shorter, but um, as of right now, it's at 16 pages. Uh, the next major change 
comes at the bottom of page four with respect to non-renewal of leases. And at the first complete paragraph, it does say through administrative order 2020-159, the Supreme Court has interpreted the CDC order to specifically provide protection for the non-renewal of leases when the non-renewal is for non-payment of rent. We then quote the Supreme Court administrative order. And the, next, the first complete paragraph on page five, the Supreme Court did not provide a standard of proof for uh, uh, the motion on the non-renewal of lease, but they did on the motion to contest and they put that burden of proof on the landlord. So we, um, as a preponderance of the evidence, so we went ahead and said, well, this burden of proof for sure is a preponderance of the evidence as well. So the landlord has the burden of proving that the tenancy was not renewed for a reason other than non-payment of rent. There's an awful lot of negatives in that, but uh, basically they have to come up with, with a reason. And again, the judge must state the basis for the ruling on the record. That one just says on the record, uh, it doesn't say in writing, so that uh, you can do verbally for that one. The next major change is uh, the partial paragraph, the, the bottom paragraph on page five. If you recall in previous iterations of the best practice and the podcast, we talked about the permutations we had to go through uh, to consider how the, the legal status of the parties because under Arizona law, when a lease, uh, when a judgment is entered, the lease is terminated, and that would arguably make the tenant a uh, trespasser or a holdover. Well, the Supreme Court in 2021-59 does allow that a tenant can remain in the premises after the expiration of the lease if if the landlord cannot prove that the non-renewal of the lease is not for a reason other than non-payment of rent. Uh, so we had to tackle, well, what then is the legal status of the tenant in that case? And we came to the same conclusion that the only thing that makes sense is that um, we have to consider that the terms of the lease continue even though the lease has expired. The next major change comes at the bottom of page six, the uh, bottom two paragraphs there. So upon notice to the court that a tenant has provided a CDC declaration, the court should, con should continue the matter until January unless a landlord files a motion to contest the CDC declaration. We gave this a lot of thought. It, the previous draft did say dismiss uh, because the CDC order says a, land, uh, a landlord shall take shall not take any action to evict, and we interpreted that to mean, as Judge Williams indicated, any action. Well, that is no longer the case. Uh, it, any action doesn't mean any action. It means um, not actually removing. Uh, so, in in addition, since a motion to contest can be filed, there has to be a pending case for them to actually file that motion to contest. So uh, rather than uh, we've determined that the best course of action is to continue the matter until January, 
you are going to have to keep track of those cases if something happens to the CDC order before then uh, then you'll have to consider those cases sooner if a if there's a change in circumstances with the tenant the landlord can file a motion to try to um, accelerate that uh, or to contest the declaration again uh, but we determined that that was a better option the landlords are going to argue that the case should proceed to judgment uh, and again the best practice committee determined that the best course of action was to continue the matter. The bottom paragraph is another change to clarify the CDC order. Uh, the actual order says that all adults must sign the declaration, all adults that are listed on the lease. That created quite a problem because uh, we can't evict targeted people from from the premises, so we, we didn't, and a covered person is someone who has signed the declaration, so that put us in the awkward position of if two people sign it and the third doesn't, you can't, the, the constable can't come out and change the keys for one of the parties and not for the other two, so either everyone's evicted or they're not. So what do we do in that situation? Well, the frequently asked questions uh, do provide that if the there has a if there's been a joint tax return then one member of the residence may provide an executed declaration on behalf of the other adult residents and then on page seven uh, uh, before the motions to contest the CDC declaration we did amend that evidence uh, the last sentence that uh, uh, that uh, talks about post-judgment, the um, CDC frequently asked questions, did confirm our interpretation that a signed declaration at any state of the case, at any, at any time during the case, can stop the proceedings. So the CDC did, did uh, agree with that. Uh, and, however, if there is a change, uh, where there is a change is that they can't, uh, the landlord can't file a motion to contest. So if this, is, this comes post-judgment, if there is a CDC declaration, the landlord can contest that CDC declaration. If that is granted, then the landlord can file a motion to compel enforcement of the writ, uh, as they would do for the governor's executive order. The next big change, and, and this is on uh, the rest of page 7, uh, onto the uh, top of page eight is motions to contest the CDC declaration. And this uh, takes the language out of the administrative order. And uh, here again, you have to specifically state on the record the reason for each finding and um, uh, when you order that an eviction action may proceed. So we have provided the form for you there. Again, it, it provides that based upon the written motion, you will first determine whether or not there is sufficient basis to set this for a hearing. You're not going to automatically set everything for a hearing. Uh, you, you do have to initially review those, uh, those, the filings, and um, the filing need, should be sufficient enough that there is no additional evidence at the hearing. Uh, for you to consider. Uh, 
The administrative order requires that landlords provide a copy of the motion to the tenant, and this may be served with the complaint and summons. Uh, in situations where it was not served with the complaint, the court should set the hearing no sooner than five days after the filing and attempt to contact the tenant to ensure that the tenant has notice. This is important because we don't want landlords to be filing these and hope that the tenant doesn't appear. Uh, and, uh, and if that is the case, that the tenant doesn't appear, we do want to ensure that the tenant had notice of the hearing and chose not to appear, not that the tenant doesn't appear because they didn't have notice of the hearing. Uh, so this, this is probably the most important takeaway is uh, if you have a tenant that has failed to appear, please, please ensure that they did get notice of, of the proceeding. Uh, I would just like to uh, interject here just to, to remind everyone that we have uh, established a series of, of, of security checks in our procedure, and although um, we trust the landlord attorneys uh, that they're being truthful uh, in their attestations, there still have been cases where we have had cases filed in violations of the CARES Act or certain provisions. Um, of the, the, the executive orders. And so it is really important that we uh, maintain the integrity of the procedure by controlling the things that we as judges can control, uh, which is to make sure that proper notice has been given, that the tenant has been put on notice of the hearing, and that they're giving it an opportunity to defend those cases. Thank you. The last major change in the sixth amended best practice uh, is the paragraph at the top of page eight on forcible detainers, material noncompliance, and immediate evictions. And we talked about this in context of the administrative order and with a form. Uh, but if, if you're going to evict someone because it's not a non-payment of rent case, you do have to put that finding in writing. You have to use one of the attached forms that we have or type up your own minute entry. Uh, you cannot just say it on the record. It has to be in writing. So uh, before we move off of the best practice, uh, do either of you have anything else before we talk about the checklist? The next item in your packet is the pandemic checklist, uh, the October 12 version. And gosh, it seems like a lifetime ago I'd had this down to one page. We're now back up to three pages. Uh, after October 31st, or uh, once all of the governor's executive order cases have worked through, we can get this down back down to a couple of pages. Uh, but right now we're up to three pages because of that, plus we still have the remnants of the CARES Act. One of the reasons that it is longer is that I was asked to put more of the language from the matters in there so that when you're on the bench, uh, some of you like a script, some of you like a checklist. Well, you know, the, the actual language is now in front of you in this checklist. So at the top, we start with prejudgment. Remember, there's no change of judge. Uh, is the complaint or writ before you between, or is the case before you 
uh, between September 4 and December 31 for non-payment of rent. You'll see uh, does the tenant qualify for protection under the CDC order. We included the language about um, when filing a joint tax return that one uh, can sign on behalf of the other adult residents. There are the four standards that have to be in the declaration. And then the next language uh, is uh, the language from the CDC order of what does not qualify for CDC protection. Uh, so there's the five standards there. If the tenant is protected, continue the case uh, unless the landlord files a motion to contest the CDC declaration. And so then we have the specific language from the, CDC, uh, from the administrative order. One, the landlord must provide a reason to believe based on evidence described in the motion for each statement that one or more specific statements in the de declaration is materially inaccurate. Two, the judge must determine based on the evidence in the motion that a hearing is warranted. If it's not, then the matter's continued till January. If, uh, if the landlord has suggested language or evidence that um, there is enough to proceed, then you set it for hearing. At the hearing, if the landlord proves by a preponderance of the evidence that any statement identified in the motion is materially inaccurate, the judge must state on the record the reason for each finding in order that the eviction action may proceed. If the landlord does not meet this burden at the hearing, then this matter is continued again until January. All right, then page two is the complaint or writ before you between October 8 and December 31 for a non-renewal of the lease. And uh, pursuant to the Supreme Court Administrative Order 2020 you have to look for whether or not the tenant qualifies for protection under the CDC order. Uh, termination of a month-to-month -month tenancy is presumed to be due to non-payment of rent. If unpaid rent, a penalty or interest is owed. The CDC order is applicable unless the landlord proves the termination was for a reason other than non-payment of rent, penalties, or interest. And again, we determined that that burden of proof would be a preponderance of the evidence. So then the next issue you have is, is the complaint before you a forcible detainer, a material non-compliance, or immediate eviction? Uh, if yes, if you conclude that it is, then again, you must provide written findings as part of your ruling. That, that is a must. You must provide written findings. We've attached two forms for you that you can use as the basis for your ruling. If there is no CDC protection, then you still have to look for the CARES Act. If there is rent between March 27 and July 25, that is the remnant of the CARES Act. So you do need to ensure that there are no late fees or penalties, and you do need to ensure that there was a at least a five-day notice, but then the tenant was not evicted prior to 30 days after that notice. They also have to have an attestation. Uh, and, of course, keep in mind there also has to be a CDC attestation the new administrative order also requires that the REIS is uh, supplemented by a one-page notice for tenants. The frequently asked questions concludes the landlord does not have to tell the tenant 
about the CDC order, but the courts do. So served with the summons and, and with the REIS is the one-page supplement, and there is a form uh, attached to the Supreme Court administrative order. That is what the court provides. The court does not provide the CDC declaration. The court can tell a tenant where to get it, but not actually put it in the hand of the tenant. Is there, the next question is, is there a prior judgment against the tenants? Uh, ensure that your rental damages are not included in more than one judgment. Uh, ensure that the complaint does not seek more than $10,000 exclusive of interest costs and attorney's fees, because uh, we, we cannot exceed your jurisdiction. The third and final page is the post-judgment form. Uh, do not issue a writ if they are protected by the CDC order. Again, the CDC can protect at any stage. Uh, motion to compel enforcement of a writ. Uh, we will look at does the tenant qualify for the CDC order on, on uh, if it is one of if it's for non-payment of rent, then uh, the landlord will have to file a, a, a motion to contest the declaration. Uh, and then we go discuss the governor's executive order EO49 protections. Those are only in effect for another 19 days. And then finally, if you get a motion to amend a judgment, uh, you do want to consider whether the tenant is still in possession and do not issue a writ, again, if they are protected by the CDC order. If you do grant a motion to compel enforcement of the writ or a motion to amend judgment, remember that the writ must be issued five days after that. Uh, you don't just make up a date for uh, the writ. And judges, do either of you have anything to say about anything we've talked about thus far before we talk about the one last issue? Okay. And then the last issue to talk about is the Supreme Court did another order uh, the same day as 159, Judge Huberman. Yes, um, I will be very honest that I had not realized that the post office had changed their procedures until I received this administrative order. Uh, so... Uh, the, the post office, due to the pandemic and the issues with uh, the contact, uh, has changed the signature requirement uh, with the certified and registered mail. So they're no longer obtaining the actual signature uh, from the customer. So the employee, the postal employee who's making that delivery, enters that information um, either on the, the actual green card, the, the cardboard delivery, or an electronic receipt that they use, um, identifying who the person who received the mailing is. And so now the administrative order of the Supreme Court has just uh, indicated that uh, we are suspending any requirements for the actual personal signature of these notices and that the court will accept the postal employee's uh, written indication that signifies that the, deli uh, the delivery um, and that the court should consider that sufficient to document the service in this case. 
Um, and then all of this is retroactive to uh, the cases where we've had um, these uh, this type of, of notice or these electronic signatures uh, before this administrative order went into effect. Um, so that is just clearing up something that the post office is doing. Um, and um, uh, it seems that for now that will be uh, the requirements for the courts to accept that while the post office is still using that different procedure. I will say that specifically in the case of evictions, we normally do not see any type of receipts coming back to us within the time frames that the evictions are set. Um, so in, in, I think in what relates specifically to evictions, we may not be seeing this. Um, but again, um, we should always be careful that the tenants actually have notice of the hearing, uh, whether this be by verifying that they received a certified letter or uh, some other way if we're using email or we're using phone calls to let them know we're sending the constable to make sure that they get notice of the hearing. Um, this is important to understand that these receipts uh, are acceptable and definitely you will see these come up in um, other types of cases, whether it be uh, small claims cases or maybe even regular civil for some other types of uh, notifications or services. And that is uh, the items that we've talked about are in your packet, and we will give Judge Huberman the last word. I, I just want to remind everyone that, you know, th these have been a very trying uh, eight or seven months that we've been going through, and there's been a lot of uh, tumultuous times, specifically with evictions. Um, and... No, just be aware that landlords are getting frustrated, tenants are also getting frustrated, and that it, I would expect that we will be getting a lot of arguments in court from attorneys about different interpretations of how to interpret these orders, what the DOJ said or what the CDC said, or um, there, there will just be a, a, a myriad of things that are going to come through. And I just want to encourage the judges to make sure that you're up to date with our best practices, that what we, um, how we have interpreted everything, and just to make sure that you are following uh, the guidance and the letter of the administrative orders and all the orders that are out there. All right, and thank you, judges. And uh, we'll probably do another one of these before the end of the year <laughs> and uh, maybe a few more after the start of the year and uh, again the materials and the cojet certificate are in hightail uh, stay safe and healthy everybody stay safe.